So please turn to Second Thessalonians chapter two. <clears throat> Approximately six hundred years ago, a, a frightened and angry monk experienced the the transformational power of the gospel. His his fear and trembling was due to the infinite power and holiness of God. His anger was due to God's demand for righteousness, moral perfection, that, is a, that morally imperfect people are incapable of producing in and through themselves. So Martin Luther's transformation came through the gracious discovery that we are not justified before God by our own works or merits, but through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. And, and his awakening, his spiritual awakening to this truth caused his, his fears and his anger to, to melt away. And as his fear and anger melted away, he, uh, he in turn became a force for truth, as one biographer called him, a volcano for God. And the echo effect of that gospel transformation has continued to reverberate through the centuries. And the, the practical and far-reaching impact of the Reformation was to get the church of Jesus Christ back on the rails of conformity to the word of God for the glory of God. And in Luther's own words, uh, words that he gave in defense of himself at his trial before the imperial council, he said, and this is, this is a famous quote, I am bound to the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not retract anything. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is aiming to get the, the Thessalonian disciples back on the rails of conformity to God's word. In verses 1 through 12, his main point was, let no one deceive you. And then in verses 13 to 17, which is the text I want to draw your attention to this morning, Paul's aim is not so much to correct, but to engender Luther-like resolve, to lead us uh, to the conviction where we can, um, we could, we could graciously and, and compellingly say, here on this word we stand. So I, I pray that the Lord might do the same among us here this morning. Please follow along. I'm going to read Second Thessalonians chapter two, verses thirteen through seventeen. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. Beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, Brothers, stand firm and hold 
to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. As always, Father, we, we marvel that uh, we can hear your voice. We can hear you communicating yourself from your heart through words. This is, this is you and your presence and your activity now coming to us, addressing us. And, and we ask, O oh Lord, for ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that would be tender and humble to receive, that you'd cause your word to speed ahead, you'd cause it to run, you'd cause it to get its work done, and in the process it would bring honor and glory to you, and it would it would change us. You would form us. You would shape us into your will and your likeness and purpose for us. So please do this. Please do this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The main point of this passage is found in verse 15, where it says, So then, or therefore, brothers, stand firm, and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So stand firm. Hold. God values stability when it comes to the faith and the spiritual well-being of his people. There's a, there's a golden thread, and this is it. This is the golden thread that runs through the Thessalonian correspondence. Stand firm, stand fast, hold. In chapter in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 verses 1 through 3 it says when we could bear it no longer we sent Timothy to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 8 it says for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. So stability. It is a uh, coveted quality in every sphere of human life. Governments talk about stabilizing the economy. Contractors endeavor to construct stable homes. We like it when we have stable, uninterrupted internet connection. We admire people who have a stable personality. We call them even-keeled. We trust people with solid character. We respect people with firm convictions. Personally, I am now appreciating how a, a fabricated plate about six inches long with seven screws has stabilized my skeletal structure. Back in July, I, I, uh, uh, I lived through a spectacular uh, bicycle crash, and I shattered my 
collarbone and just snapped it completely off and had surgery. And I'm in good shape. I mean, as you can tell, I think I could even maybe throw a fastball. Um, so I can testify that stability is good. Stability is very good. Um, and I, it's good because of the surgical installation of my own restoration hardware. I'm no longer listing. <laughs> and stability has even more significance and greater value when it comes to our faith. God means for his people to be rock solid, established, rooted, grounded, anchored, tethered, whatever word you want to use. Our spiritual stability is vital. And Paul's uh, apostolic priority was to plant and to nurture stable spiritual communities. This is the end for which he prays in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope, establish them in every good work and word. So there are some um, who, by virtue of their emotional constitution or on account of perhaps some past trauma, who are more vulnerable to instability than others. But here's what is true, absolutely true for every living, breathing human being. Jesus himself said it in John 16, 33. In the world, you will have trouble. Trouble is a fact of life. At some point or another, if not every single day, all of us will be visited by trouble. But God, through Paul, is at work even now, in this moment, through his word, and in particular, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, to engender a firm foundation. So then, therefore, brothers and sisters, stand firm. Hold fast. Because there are disturbances to our comfort and joy in the Lord that are new every morning. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. That's a, that's a fairly comprehensive list of some of the most common destabilizers. If we find ourselves shaken in mind or alarmed in our spirits, uh, whether or not it's in relation to some false teaching, it is likely either a demonic assault or something somebody said, you know, or how they said it, or how we heard it, or something genuinely slanderous, something that just blatantly false that has been attributed to us. Wouldn't you agree that these are, these are kind of the garden variety things, the daily occurrences that, depending on the condition of our hearts, can 
quickly, as Paul says. Just like that. Just like that. Dislodge us from our sense of joy and satisfaction and comfort in God. They're like terror cells that strike suddenly, unexpectedly. Sun Tzu, in his uh, book, The Art of War, said, attack your enemy where he is unprepared, appear where you are not expected. And Paul knows this. Paul knows this and therefore his aim is to strengthen and to stabilize our faith. It's a reminder. It's a reminder yet again that we do not simply begin with faith and then move on from faith. Rather, faith that is a joyful satisfaction in and reliance upon all that God is for us in Jesus. It is the beginning, it is the middle, and it is all the way to the finish line of the Christian life. So, how does it work? How does faith work? How does, how does Paul stabilize, engender deeper, more steady faith? What are Paul's instructions for Christian stability? Well, I want to draw your attention to uh, three tools. Three tools Paul uses to encourage us to stand firm. Three means of comfort to calm us down. (laughs) Three things that function kind of like breathing into a paper bag when you're hyperventilating. And the first is this. Hold fast to sound doctrine. Very principle, foundational, core, sovereign grace value. Hold fast to sound doctrine. Paul, again, his main point is stated very clearly in verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by spoken word or by our letter. So the, the, the command states in a positive way what Paul had said earlier in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, where he, he said it negatively. We ask you not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you. So, true, enduring faith is is fixed on the things that God has actually said. And God has actually spoken once for all to us objectively through the writers of Scripture. And if we're going to find ourselves anchored securely, it will be first and it will be foremost as we hear and obey God's word, sola scriptura. That's the plumb line. In, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 to 5, Paul says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension and slander, evil suspicions and constant friction 
among the people. In other words, there are load-bearing doctrines. And then there are other doctrines that have little, if anything, to do with supporting the essential structures of our spiritual well-being. And the, and the, the, the fruit of novel, peripheral, divergent doctrines is seldom sweet. Instead, they lead to all manner of destabilizing effects within a spiritual community. Hold fast to sound doctrine. Second, second way Paul comforts us and solidifies our spiritual standing place. Guard your heart with gratitude. Guard your heart with gratitude. I get that from verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. And now Paul's not saying, you know, we, we really should feel gratitude to God for you, brothers and sisters, but we don't. You know, what, what Paul is saying is that God has provided such profound heart-stirring faith-strengthening reasons to feel thankful for you. It's, it's impossible not to express gratitude to God for you. The, the word translated to give thanks is the Greek word eucharistain. It's the word for which we get the word eucharist, which we just observed the way some people use the word. The word eucharistain is the word charis. Charis is the word we translate grace or gift. And the root of charis is the word kara, which we translate joy. So the root the or the heart or the, the ground of gratitude is joy in all that God has Given And there, therefore, as we pay attention to and, and fix our thoughts on all that God has so graciously given, there rises within us the palpable affection of thankfulness. And what a powerful and soul-stabilizing affection thankfulness is. So, the, the week following this spectacular bicycle crash I endured in July. That, that, was, the, that was the hardest week pain-wise. Um, and so I was hurting, and while I was hurting, I read two books. I read this novel by Vince Flynn um, about a CIA assassin named Mitch Rapp. See, I, 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 when I'm in pain... Uh, I know two things. When I'm in pain, I know that drugs can buy you game. Um, and two, I can deal with pain by gorging myself with junk food for the brain. And Vince Flynn cooks some very fine junk food for the brain. So Vince Flynn was on my diet. The other book I read that week was 1,000 Gifts by Ann Voskamp. Now I know, that's a chip book. 
But I have a, a really good friend of mine, a guy friend that is, who had passed it on to me a while back. He, he and his family have, have actually become personally acquainted with the Voss camps. They, they've even spent time with the Voss camps on their farm in southern Ontario. So anyway, so for a, a week, I'm, I'm back and forth between Mitch Rapp and the, you know, the CIA assassin and the Voss camp family. And uh, has anybody here read 1,000 Gifts? <laughs> See, it's a chick book. It's a chick book. Oh, even though it might be a chick book, 1,000 Gifts is, is actually quite gritty. Not as gritty as Vince Flynn, but it's gritty. And, and that's because their family has, they've experienced the tragedy of an accidental death of a child. Their family has experienced uh, been touched by cancer. Um, they have endured the financial pressures that rise when their sole income source, their pig farmers, their sole income source, their hogs were dying off because of disease. That's, that's pressuresome. Uh, they're a young family with six children whom Anne uh, homeschools, and their kids are active. One of their young sons lost, I forget which appendage, to a close encounter with a farm implement. In other words, they're legit people. You know, they've gone through it. They got, they got, there's blood stains on their life. And um, this book, 1,000 Gifts, makes a case for the transformational power of the joy and comfort and satisfaction in God that is solidified when one pays close attention, close attention to the God-given gifts that are all around us. That's the title, 1,000 Gifts. And, and this, here's the line that I, I just needed to hear this week. I'm just, you know, I'm wallowing in self-pity and I'm aching like crazy. I'm listing like that and feeling sorry. For, you know, where I'm, where I'm from Minnesota, I live in South Dakota, Summer short, and um, I lost my summer because of this bike accident. Ann Voskamp says, as long as thanks is possible, joy is possible. That's what Paul's getting at. Our most fundamental protection against disrupted satisfaction in God is close attention to the multitude of God-given gifts, the myriad of God-given reasons to feel gratitude and thanks for all that God is to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. So guard your heart with gratitude. Here's a third soul stabilizer. Live every day in the good of the gospel. If the joy and comfort of your faith has been disrupted by a demon or deflated by some thoughtless thing somebody said or has been derailed on account of the hurt of someone's slander or become dislodged on account of the fact you've 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 Take, been taken in by some divergent doctrine, then here, this is, right here is where you anchor 
your faith. Verses 13 and 14. Brothers, beloved by God, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this, He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a concise and thorough theology of the Reformation doctrine of salvation. Oh, to live in the good of this every day. I want you, I want you to look at this. I'm going to unpack this. Look at the first thing. God loves sinners. Verse 13. Brothers beloved by the Lord. D- does it solidify your faith? And comfort your soul to know that you're loved by God. God loves sinners. At Emmaus Road Church, I'm I'm now preaching my way through the book of Proverbs. And uh, in my meditation the other day, I, I landed on Proverbs 15.24. Proverbs 15.24 says, The path of life leads upward for the prudent. Sadly, rather than winding upward, some people's lives are in steep decline in a downward spiral. And, And here's why. Sin leads to guilt. Guilt leads to shame. Ultimately, shame leads to condemnation. Condemnation leads to bottoming out. Death. You know what I'm talking about, right? Have you, have you ever circled the drain? <laughs> that, that, I, I have. Um, if a building is condemned, that means it's unfit for use. It's disqualified. It's only good for being pulled down. That's how a lot of people live their lives. They live feeling condemned. Unfit when it comes to being useful to God, when it comes to worship, when it comes to feeling like they, they could make a contribution, when it comes to being a rock-solid piece of the foundation of what Jesus is building. They feel unworthy, unforgivable, even unlovable. They feel disqualified. And if we're going to shake off shame, then we must understand the full power of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and live in the good of it. And it begins with knowing and trusting that you are loved by God. But the good of the gospel foundation goes deeper. Secondly, God chose you to be saved. Verse 13 Brothers beloved by the Lord, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. That sounds a lot like what Paul says to the Ephesians in Ephesians 1.4. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. 
in, in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul says, God chose us as the first fruits. Now, that can mean one of two things. It, it, it can either mean he chose us from the beginning, like before the foundation of the world, or it can mean that God chose the Thessalonian disciples to be like the first converts among that particular people group. Either way, it's amazing. It's amazing. Perhaps you're a first-generation Christian in your family line. Do you realize how, how powerful that is? Your salvation has nothing to do with your lineage, has nothing to do with your heritage, has nothing to do with your upbringing. It's all God. That's what the reformers called sola gratia, grace alone. And if Paul means essentially the same thing that he says in Ephesians 1.4, namely, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, well, then the point is the same. Our salvation, our conversion is owing nothing, owing to nothing in us or about us or because of us. Our salvation is the outworking of a divine choice made in eternity past. He, that is God the Father, chose us in him, that is Jesus God the Son, before Genesis 1.1. Our transition from death to life, from sinner to saint, from object of wrath to object of mercy, was exclusively and entirely the result of sovereign grace. I don't know about you, but I am so profoundly and humbly grateful to God that my salvation does not ultimately depend on the steadfastness of my resolve or the stability of my affections or the moral clarity of my perspective. I am happy to ascribe any and all evidence of transformation in my life wholly to God. The foundation goes deeper. Thirdly, we are converted, that is, we experience new birth through the work or the agency of the Holy Spirit. Verse 13 again. God chose you to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit. Which means that the Holy Spirit is the agent of our conversion. The Spirit is the one who does the regenerating, making us spiritually alive so that we're able to respond to the call of the gospel. Now, for some, this is unsettling, um, but what makes our Reformed perspective on salvation stabilizing is that it confronts us with our hopeless spiritual moral, legal condition before God apart from God's regenerating grace and places the burden for any and all transformation squarely back on God. Before new birth happens to us, we're spiritually dead. We're morally selfish and rebellious. We're legally guilty before God's law and by nature children of wrath. Bef before we will ever turn 
and treasure Christ, something needs to happen to us. We must experience new birth. And we do not cause new birth. God the Holy Spirit causes the new birth. We're helpless and absolutely dependent on someone else outside ourselves to awaken spiritual desire for Jesus, to open our eyes to the beauty of Jesus, to arrest us from our hell-bound race away from Jesus. And praise be to God. According to 1 Peter 1.3, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. What a solid rock to stand on. And what a good in which to live. But the foundation goes deeper. Fourth. Salvation comes through the internal and external call of the gospel. I get this from verse 14. To this, he called, he called you through our gospel. So loved ones, if, if you're trusting and treasuring Jesus today, it is owing to the internal effective call of God's triumphant word of creation through someone telling it and you hearing it. It's, it's the call of Jesus that the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus says to this dead guy, Lazarus, come out. And the call creates what it commands. And here's where some Piperian verb, verbiage helps us. Here's John Piper. He says, the internal call is God's sovereign, creative, unstoppable voice. It creates what it commands. God speaks not just to the ear and the mind, but he speaks to the heart. His internal heart call opens the eyes of the blind heart, opens the ears of the deaf heart, and causes Christ to appear as the supremely valuable person that he really is. So the heart freely then and eagerly embraces Christ as the treasure that he is. That's what God does when he calls us through the gospel. And God asserts that call through our presentation, yours and mine, of the truth of the gospel. So here's how somebody's saved. We explain the good news of salvation in Jesus. And as we're speaking, God sovereignly asserts his grace and communicates his internal call. And at that moment, the Holy Spirit does this work of opening spiritual eyes and ears and awakening a dead heart. And when one sees the beauty of Jesus and hears the sweet news of Jesus and their hearts are now alive to respond to Jesus 
they repent and they believe and they run to Jesus. And they do it because they want to. Jesus is so sweet, so beautiful, so excellent that they respond to him as the treasure that he truly is. Faith comes and only comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. What a miracle that is. What a gift that is. The foundation goes deeper. Fifth, the end of salvation is being joined to Jesus. The end of salvation is union with Jesus. Verse 14 again, to this he called you through our gospel so that, this is the end, this is the aim, that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) That's the end. That we obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The aim, the end of of this great salvation is that all the, the blessings that Jesus has received from God the Father, that is, all of what Christ Jesus alone, solus Christus, has accomplished on our behalf as a Savior, his taking on human flesh and blood, his sinless perfect life, his justice-satisfying, self-sacrificing, sin-forgiving death, his life-giving, justifying resurrection, his high priestly intercession at this very moment, as well as all his kingly provision and dominion, all of these things, every last one of these unspeakably awesome, glorious blessings are ours Completely, entirely our possession as we are joined to Him through faith. This is the sixth layer of the foundation. This great salvation is ours, all ours, completely ours, through depending on Christ. Verse 13. God chose you to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. After uh, after I had this accident, um, <laughs> my mainly helpless condition for almost ten weeks, I, I I sat in my recliner twenty three hours a day for ten weeks. You know, just like going stir crazy. Had me thinking about faith, I'll tell you. Had me thinking about who I could depend on to get me out of the chair sometimes, put me in the chair sometimes, uh, scrub my armpit sometimes. It was all about trust and dependence. And God mercifully used my condition to reveal to me what I really count on, what I really depend on what I really entrust myself to for my sense of well-being and comfort. And it wasn't so pleasant. We're all weak in different ways, right? Um, so um, that means that, um, you know, my, my wife, my sons that live at home, um, 
they can depend on me for some things. And they can't depend on me for other things. Like for 10 weeks, they couldn't depend on me for really much of anything. I'll pray for you. Um, It means that I can depend on them for some things and not for other things. You know, in other words, we're just all more or less dependent. You know, we're, we're more or less dependable. More or less solid. More or less stable. Which means if we count on, depend on, rely on anyone, or anything other than the rock, solid truth, spoken and promised by God alone, guaranteed by the death of the Son of God alone, revealed through the Word of God alone. We can and we will be quickly shaken in mind and alarmed in heart. But living in the good of the gospel means depending on a more sure and certain foundation. Namely, Christ died for my sins. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Including the promise of the experience of divine love and the forgiveness of our sins and the removal of all condemnation before God, and eternal comfort for our hearts, and daily manifestations of His active presence and power, and providing everything, providing for every need that we have, and the steady supply of all that we need to fulfill every good work to which He has called us and commanded us commanded us to fulfill. It's the giver who gets all the glory. There's great stability in sound doctrine and gratitude-filled hearts and lives lived daily in the good of the gospel. And so, I've asked the Lord to plant this prayer deeply in your hearts. And and I've asked the Lord to answer this prayer for each one of you to whom he he would stir you to, to pray it as well. Verses 16 and 17. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. May that be so in Jesus' name. Amen.